for news as it happens. I'll be back with another full 15 minutes of news at 11 o'clock. Coming up right now, Gene Shepard. something uh, a little unusual for those of you who don't live in the city and wonder what it's all about. But uh, here on the station, we've had a 24-hour day about Brooklyn. <laughs> and, uh, you know, politics and the whole business. But I'm much more interested in uh, in Brooklyn, and, and uh, I'm sure that even, uh, even some guy living in Boston has a certain attitude towards Brooklyn. You know, there's certain cities... Uh, certain towns that people have an attitude towards even though they have never been there. Now, nobody quite knows why this is. For example, if I were to say to you, uh, Cheyenne, you have an attitude towards it. Cheyenne somehow is an exciting place. At least even the name is exciting. Now, if I, on the other hand, said to you, uh, Indianapolis, <laughs> you'd shrug your shoulders, you have no, you know, all right, so what, what do you, you know, you'd say, well, so what? In other words, you have no attitude towards Indianapolis except so what? Well, in the case of, uh, in the case of Brooklyn, the attitude is a curious one. Uh, people are always vaguely, or they used to be, well, is that thing giving you trouble in there, Herb? They, they used to be vaguely amused by Brooklyn. Uh, in fact, any, any time a comic got up, and I uh, wanted to make sure that he got a laugh. He would always put a Brooklyn joke in his, in his, uh, in his act. Now, nobody knows why. This is a great mystery. Nobody has ever been able to explain it. Because uh, when I first came to New York, and uh, this is personal reminiscence, when I first came to New York, I, I uh, like most guys that first come to New York, I, I, I was hungry for the city. It's a curious thing that happens to you when you first get into a town like New York. You... You practically de devour it for the first couple of years. You you jump on subways and you go to Coney Island. Yeah, I went to Coney Island, and you you uh, uh, you take the Staten Island ferry to look at Staten Island. You do all these things, but uh, after you you begin to be part of New York and you begin to be absorbed in New York, you get to be part of one certain area of New York, and so completely absorbs you that the rest of the city is almost non-existent. I think this is what happens to people like Lindsay. I think uh, it happens to people. It's a natural thing. Uh, Manhattan is a great devourer of people and an absorber of people. And I live in Manhattan. So Brooklyn has remained a kind of an abstraction to me, as it has to many people who even live here right here in the city. For those of you who don't know much about uh, Brooklyn, if you've ever flown to New York, 
particularly to LaGuardia Airport, quite often the approach is made. You come in over Brooklyn. <laughs> Those those houses, all those all those uh, those uh, dun colored uh, blocks of uh, apartment houses and things. If you come in from a certain way, you see you look down there and you see those those thousands of miles of streets uh, jutting out into the water. There, that's Brooklyn. Now, at the far end of Brooklyn, of course, is, is Sheepshead Bay, uh, which is a fascinating part of Brooklyn. Uh, Coney Island is way out there. Of course, the, the, the fantastic transition of Coney Island in the last couple of years has been really spectacular. Uh, for those of you who don't know that it has happened, but Coney Island just a few years ago, I can remember when I was in the Army one weekend coming to Coney Island, and, and Coney Island was like, uh, like a whole end in itself. It was a fantastic operation. Uh, it's hard to believe it now, but uh, you'd walk down the boardwalk and there'd be thousands and thousands, really, sometimes millions of people on a hot July weekend would be down at Coney Island. Uh, all the freak shows and all the, the steeplechase. I never saw anything like the steeplechase. You know what the steeplechase was? It was a fantastic ride. <laughs> I never saw anywhere else a ride like the steeplechase. Now, for those of you who don't know what the steeplechase is, it was literally that. It was a it was a steeplechase, and you'd get on this mechanical horse. It was a mechanical horse, and it went up and down over hills. It was like a big course that thing was on. Is it still there? I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. No. I, in fact, I know it isn't. And you would pay, and you'd get on this thing, and a whole bunch of other people would get on the other horses, and they'd hit the button, and these horses would go. Mechanical horses would go tearing off down the course. You'd ride on this thing. Well, there was always a great big line of people there to get on this thing. It was, a, it was like the center of all of Coney Island, the steeplechase. It's uh, like, you know, it was it. Now, uh, that is all practically gone. Uh, Coney Island is just another stop on the subway. And uh, you see it on the subways. You see a, a sign that says Coney Island. And uh, no longer do thousands of people go to Coney Island to, to, to ride on the rides and so on. Although the beach still remains there, it, it with the... Uh, with the change in people's attitudes, that beach is no longer the big beach that everybody goes to. Now it's switched to Jones Beach. Out of the people who used to go to Coney Island are now going to Jones Beach, which is out on Long Island. Uh, it's out on part of Fire Island, actually. So that uh, it, a lot of things have changed in the public's attitude towards Brooklyn. But Brooklyn remains Brooklyn. Uh, for those of you who... Uh, who uh, have never seen Brooklyn, you probably, you're probably not aware, but you have seen Brooklyn many, many times. Brooklyn is often seen in the backgrounds of movies, uh, particularly movies that you see on old, late television, old TV shows. Uh, I don't know whether they shoot many movies in Brooklyn anymore, but quite often when you'd see an old movie, uh, you see an old movie starring somebody like Pat O'Brien, uh, he was always a cab driver from Brooklyn. Uh, you know who also played cab drivers from Brooklyn? He was he was continually playing a cab driver from Brooklyn. Was uh, oh uh, what's his name? Uh, oh he's uh, he's doing a few commercials. You see him occasionally. Lloyd Nolan. Lloyd Nolan was sort of the epitome of the cab driver from Brooklyn. And uh, I wonder how many times I've seen him in the movie and wearing this this funny little hats. I've never seen a cab driver wear those kind of hats, but they do in the movies. That's this little hat with a kind of a checker thing that runs around uh, with a bill sticking out the front. And he's always saying, where to, Mac? Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the guy in the back seat says, follow that car. 
Is it father a cop, eh? Nothing to it, Mac. And he takes off. Well, that's the beginning of any, any one of an endless number of pictures starring uh, William Powell. And the cab driver was Lloyd Nolan. However, that's uh, Brooklyn to, to most people. Uh, Brooklyn was uh, what they hear, uh, what they remember out of old radio shows with Arnold Stang. I can remember Arnold Stang playing the, the, the guy from Brooklyn on endless radio shows that Henry Morgan used to do. Uh, and uh, so Brooklyn, Brooklyn has a curious, curious uh, public image, as apart from its uh, real, you know, the real facts of the matter. Brooklyn is a place where there are slums and there are great areas. By the way, that's another thing many people outside don't know, that some of the best living areas of all of New York actually homes with lawns and stuff around them are in Brooklyn. Uh, on the other hand, some of the worst slums are in Brooklyn. So it's a it's a big sprawling city. But the thing that most people remember now, I I'm, and I'm not I, I don't deal in nostalgia at all. Uh, this is not not anything that's uh, interesting to me particularly. However, history is that's different from nostalgia. History is not to be taken as nostalgia, not at all. And most people tend to think it is. But Brooklyn has a curious history, and uh, in fact, so has all of New York. And I I ran across a. a a, a fascinating, I, I, it's on, on newsstands, I guess, isn't it? It's a fascinating uh, sort of a tabloid magazine format, thing called Nostalgia. It's not nostalgic, but it's a historical thing. I think he's, he's, uh, he's playing it strong when he says nostalgia. It's more history. And it's a picture magazine of little old New York, and it's called The First Issue, Diamond Jubilee Number, and uh, published by a man named Bob Richmond, and uh, he's at 861 Broadway. I'll give all credit. New York City, and it's but it's fascinating. He begins with a with a these are great pictures of old New York, Sixth uh, and Ninth Avenue elevated lines. Uh, pick, yeah, it's fast, fascinating to think of the idea of these two cities running across each other. You know, elevated lines. Here's a tremendous double page picture here of uh, Sunday morning bathing scene on the beach at Coney Island, showing the new Iron Pier landing of the Iron Steamboats. And it shows thousands of people all standing there wearing their, their turn-of-the-century bathing suits or before, and they're all watching the steamboats coming into the Iron Pier in Brooklyn, which is Coney Island. A lot of people, I suppose, don't know that Coney Island is part of Brooklyn. They think of, no, well, you know, you've got to realize, I, I remember when I came to New York first, I was very hazy on a lot of the actual geographical uh, entities involved. We, most people uh, know the things. You can, come from, you can come from Utah, you can come from Indiana, you can come from places like Missouri, and you know about Brooklyn. You know about or at least you heard of it. You know, and you think you know about it. But the, the reality of it is very different. It, uh, I did not know, for example, that Coney Island, which was also a reality. Everybody had heard of Coney Island. This is part of Brooklyn. Uh, it had never been pointed out to me in any of the uh, Brooklyn jokes that I saw when I was a kid in the Abbott and Costello movies that Coney Island was part of Brooklyn. <laughs> and uh, this is the way it is. Our ideas are formed in curious ways, and I think the 20th century man's ideas in general are formed pretty much on the movies uh, uh, and the TV shows that he sees about things. And he really thinks he knows about these things. He's, he's seen them enough. Manhattan is very different from the movie the television even, and the magazine versions that you constantly get all around the country. Uh, they always picture it either as a hotbed of fantastic uh, 
crime and vice and and, uh, and on the other hand, they always have glamour, uh, fantastic glamour, where Gloria Steinem is always seen uh, outlined against the, the Seagram building with a light, uh, sh you know, and this is another side. Well, it's, it's, a, it's that vast area in between where people really live that never really actually comes out in films. Uh, no, it's not theatrical, so what do you do with it? Well, in the case of Brooklyn, let's get back to Brooklyn. It's an interesting place. Uh, I remember the first time that I personally was in Brooklyn. And uh, why I was personally in Brooklyn is the very reason why almost everybody ever was first off in Brooklyn. It was a ball game. And uh, to, to many people, and I would say probably the vast majority of people around the country, Brooklyn was the Dodgers. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. And nothing to do with nostalgia. It was a fact that uh, just like Green Bay... Uh, how many people would ever heard of Green Bay if it wasn't for the Packers? Uh, and and uh, I suspect that this may bug a lot of people living in Green Bay who like to think of Green Bay as this intellectual center, and it has uh, an art museum. It has all those things, and it's a good little town. But to the rest of the world, it's a football team, and that's it. Well, this is the way with Brooklyn. Cause in, and whenever Brooklyn was ever mentioned in films or in, in radio shows, they always mentioned the Dodgers. It's amazing, though, to know that a lot of people do not realize why they called them the Dodgers. Why they were called the Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, uh, are you curious why that was so? Well, in, it, was, it was coined by a sports writer, an unknown sports writer, the term. Uh, this was before the turn of the century, or about that time, uh, when baseball was, was played by practically everybody. Uh, everybody played baseball. It was it was the, not only the national game, but it was it was also the national sport, which is a different thing. It was a game that people both played and watched. Everybody played baseball, and uh, in Brooklyn, Brooklyn was a city of streets. It was it's a very urban city, and uh, it was by urban. I mean, it was it was it, an urban city was, is different from a city that sits out in the country someplace all by itself. Brooklyn Brooklyn was crisscrossed with thousands. Of uh, of trolley cars, and uh, and and it was it was a city of of streetcars, thousands of miles of streetcar tracks crossed Brooklyn, and the streets were very crowded, and so they began to call the Brooklyn team the Trolley Dodgers, that to get to a ball game you had to dodge trolleys, <laughs> so they called them the Trolley Dodgers, and uh, so that's how they got the name the Dodgers. It, re it referred to that. Uh, kind of a dull reason, <laughs> or is it fascinating? Uh, speaking, of, this is W O R New York, and uh, let's see, we've got a couple of quick commercials here. Uh, here's one, March 31st. For any of you types that save money, should be good news for most of you because on that day, most banks will credit interest to your savings account. That's the 31st. Some at five percent a year, some as low as four percent a year because interest is credited and available in most banks every three months. Now, the question that this commercial asks is, will you have to wait another three months before you get another dividend credited your account? In other words, if you took your money out of the bank, say, uh, uh, April 10th, would you get any credit for that, uh, that 10 days in there? Well, uh, not in many banks. Customers of Provident Savings Bank won't have to wait because Provident credits dividends monthly. Providence Savers get their 5% dividends posted to their account on the last day of this month and every month, which means that if you take your 
money out in May, you get credit for April, you know. Provident can arrange to transfer your account from any bank with a minimum of effort, too. As you can start to earn 5% a year from day of deposit, which is the highest dividend rate allowed by law. And by the way, you don't have to be a Jersey resident. This is Provident Bank. Uh, you, you can join over 82,000 Provident sa uh, savers from all over the USA. Know that Provident has never missed a dividend, never missed paying one in 132 years. So if you'd like to find out about that, to get their free bank-by-mail kit, just write Provident in care of me, W-O-R, New York, 10018. Or you can call them at MU2-6800 right now. The operators are standing by. They're a member of the FDIC, of course. <laughs> oh, the sun is slanting down out of that spectacular sky. And you're about to land in Lisbon. You, Lisbon. <laughs> the plane rolls out to a halt. And five minutes later, a stranger is handing you the keys to a car and a few road maps. And Portugal belongs to you for the next eight days. <laughs> Lobsters, wine, music, song. And Portugal, what a fantastic country. And this is only $270, believe it or not. The people of TAP, the Intercontinental Airline of Portugal, have put this fantastic country on sale until the 30th of April. And believe me, April is so fast, it goes before you know it. Call your travel agent or the people at TAP for complete details. The number in New York is 421-8500. And both of these tours, by the way, including a jet-set golf tour for $299, include airfare, economy airfare, round trip, prices subject to government approval. The sale ends the 30th of April. Time is ticking off. The number again, 4218500. Okay, it's important announcement time. Mark this down in your important announcement calendar. April the 7th. April the 7th. April the 7th. That is a Friday. And mark this down well. Red Bank, New Jersey will never be the same. <laughs> oh, man, I can hardly wait. Eight o'clock at the Carlton Theater in beautiful downtown Red Bank, New Jersey. We're going to celebrate the anniversary of the Great Orpheum Gravy Boat Riot. Me, Gene Shepard, live as a big, fat, round-bottomed bird. One performance only, so don't come whining around that you booted it. Now, here's how you get your tickets. From the Ticketron outlet nearest you, you can get them at all Ticketron outlets, just like the hockey game. Call area code 212-644-4400. Or you can call the box office at 201-747-3800. Ticketron, get those tickets now. April the 7th, 8 p.m., Carlton Theater, Red Bank, New Jersey. Here, I want to make a, make a note here. This is just for kids, just for high school kids, just for high school kids. I am going to be at the Donnell Library Center. That's right here in town. That's the Donnell Library, you know, which is the, at... at 20 West 53rd Street, 20 West 53rd Street. I'll be there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Monday. That's the 3rd of April, and it's sponsored by the Office of Young Adult Services of the New York Public Library. Now, I want to get back to Brooklyn now. I'm going to quote from Nostalgia here by Bob Richmond. He starts out with a, it's, it's a lot of quotes from old magazines and books and stuff and uh, what they thought of New York. And here is, it's called the New Metropolis. The 
first uh, mayor, by the way, was a man named James Duane. Uh, did you know that? James Duane was the first mayor. And he starts out by saying, The island of Manahatos was purchased from the Indians for 60 guilders, or roughly $24 paid in sundry trinkets. The little town waxed mighty for its day and generation. Steady burghers were there, well-formed and hard-working, blooming maids and hard-headed youths. <laughs> we still got that. They built a stockade of wood across the island at what is now known as Wall Street and dug a canal where is now Canal Street. That was a canal at one time. That's why they call it Canal Street, both for protection from the belligerent Indians who in, 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 infested the upper part. They were belligerent. It's, it's interesting to think that at that time there were hostile Indians in the northern part of Manhattan what would be Manhattan now. Under Stuyvesant, the settlement grew. French, English, Huguenots, and Germans came over and they engaged in trade. The man of the wooden leg, a soldier in every sense of the world, word, held the Indians in check. This is Stuyvesant. Nevertheless, it had a mixed population of burghers, shopkeepers, farmers, soldiery, runaway slaves from the Virginia plantation, and daredevil adventures. It was a frontier town in those days. All of these Stuyvesant kept in order, grimly, superbly. The day of Holland on the island of Manhattan was short-lived, despite the skill of the last of the Dutch governors. England had her eye on the fruitful province. Stuyvesant foresaw the danger, but his home government in Holland would not go for it, and they wouldn't send him any aid. So on September afternoon of the year 1664, several British frigates under command of Colonel Richard Nichols sailed up the bay, and with the aid of certain uh, insurgents, which is roughly fifth columnists, seized New Amsterdam before the Dutch even had time to do anything about it. <laughs> that was it. The city then became New York. That was the first time it became known as New York. Of course, it was named after York, England. It was New York in honor of the Duke of York, later James II, under whose direction the Nichols expedition was fitted out. Nichols became the first English governor, the guy that captured the town. He was, while not experienced in statecraft, a man who managed to conciliate the various conflicting elements, and the tenor of events ran fairly well on Manhattan Island for 13 years. Then, in 1673, the city was again captured by the Dutch. They recaptured it. They held it this time for only 15 months, and the English came back and took it away. Well, as time moved on, uh, the various boroughs began to develop, the borough of Manhattan. And uh, finally, the borough of, of, of Brooklyn, you see, grew. Now, here's where we get into Brooklyn, for those of you who are curious about the history of this. Here's the story of Brooklyn. The borough of Brooklyn has always been a mysterious borough. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote this, this magazine. It says, unlike the borough of Manhattan, Brooklyn at no time had a well-distinct, well-defined beginning as a settlement founded by European colonists. Its history is closely linked with that of Manhattan, which, of course, is just across the river, East River. It was successively known as New Amsterdam, New York, and Manhattan. That's our borough. The nucleus of the borough also had different appellations. Now, what they... You know that Brooklyn stems from the original Dutch name. It was spelled B-R-E-U-C-K-E-L-E-N. Brooklyn. Uh of the Dutch. It later became known as Brookland, L-A-N-D, Brookland under English rule, 
And then after the revolution, after after the uh, big revolution that uh, separated us from England, it became known as Brooklyn, and it's been known as Brooklyn ever since the revolution. Uh, during Governor Van Twiller's administration of the affairs of the New Netherlands for the Dutch West India Company, one of his officials, Jacob van Corlier, purchased from the Indians a plot of land called Castadio on Suwahaki, or Long Island, is what he bought, <laughs> between the Bay of the North River and the East River. This is the earliest recorded grant to an individual on the present borough of Brooklyn. On the same day, Andres Huddle and Wolfert Guerriers uh, purchased the flats next to that. Uh, and the, the land to the east of that was acquired by Governor Van Twiller himself. These, uh, these later became Brooklyn. Curiously enough, the, 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 whole, uh, the whole growth of Brooklyn, for some reason or other, it never got the attention, even though it was a great port. Brooklyn has always been a port, the Brooklyn Navy Yards. It never grew in the same way that Manhattan did, uh, in, in both in prestige and in every other way. But nevertheless, there's, there's Brooklyn. And uh, here's a great picture, the old view of Montague Street in Brooklyn Heights, showing the lover's promenade in that area. It's a great picture. <laughs> and in those days, apparently, it was a print from 1850. Brooklyn was just like a country town. Uh, it's, it, here's here's uh, one quote from that uh, that I think is very interesting. He says, Many quaint and interesting memories linger about the Brooklyn of the old days, and the present borough has great interest because of its peculiar characteristics. Though a full-fledged city for over 50 years, with its own mayor and everything else, and for a time, the third city in the Union. Did you know that Brooklyn was the third largest city in all of America at one time? Uh, Brooklyn was always unlike other great centers of population. The trade that should have been hers from her size took root in Manhattan, New York, instead of remaining on Long Island. The efforts of her people increased New York's wealth far more than they did her own. The bulk of commercial enterprise found its way to Manhattan Island, leaving for Brooklyn only shops. There were no big factories, nothing, just shops, and, and most of them were small. Warehouses, ship basins, and that's it. The old phrase, the bedroom of New York, was not only true, meaning Manhattan, of course, was not only true, but Brooklyn became the storage house of the metropolis, the dockyard and the shipping point. And now, more than ever, it has uh, become even more of that, which means that, that, that Brooklyn is like the vast attic, the storehouse and everything of Manhattan. And you know, this produces in the people's mind a curious second-class citizen feeling that the, that the average res resident of Brooklyn really... Uh, uh, would look out across the river there and see Manhattan with those great spires and the movies always showing Fred Astaire dancing on the top of a piano made out of mirrors. Where is he? He's across the damn river in, in Manhattan. See, and here they are. See, and that's, this is the, in, in a sense, the essence of the of the lure of the Brooklyn Dodgers. The Brooklyn Dodgers were always like the underdog. Uh, they were always like, uh, you know, the, the raggle-taggle team that played in this little house over there, Ebbets Field. And here they were in the big leagues, but they were in the same league with, you know, they were in the same game, playing the same game as, as the Giants. Uh, were all the uh, elegant people of the period, even to this day, still maintain that they're, they're Giant fans. You know, people like uh, 
the late Tallulah Bankhead, and all the writers of the day were all pro-giant. Uh, but here was poor little old Brooklyn over there struggling away. And back in the days when the myth of the Brooklyn Dodgers began to get really important, which was in the 30s, they had a real bad team. Uh, they were not quite the Mets of their day, but they were very, they were very close to it. And, uh, of course, the legendary stories of Brooklyn and the, the, the wild ball players that played for Brooklyn were actually exaggerated by the press because Brooklyn was sort of looked down upon. It was a, a place of bumpkins, and, uh, you know, the, he was a Brooklynite. Uh, uh, that's, uh, they were there. In other words, the stories of Babe Herman were as exaggerated as later the stories of, uh, say, uh, uh, oh, uh, the Mets uh, back in their early stumbling days and their marvelous Marv days. It's hard to know whether Babe Herman was really as bad an outfielder as they say today, uh, but that was myth, part of the mythology. The records don't hold up. <laughs> I mean, you take a look at the records, he was a very good ball player, but the records don't, don't bear out what the myth was. Now, here's, here's a quote about, about uh, and this is, this is a good book, in case you're curious. If you're a baseball fan, I think you'll find this book, uh, uh, it's a little precious in spots, and it's a little nostalgic. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, nostalgic makes me feel a little funny around the edges, but it's, it's well written and, and, and I enjoy it. It's by Roger Kahn, who uh, writes a lot of baseball stuff for the New Yorkers, used to work for the Herald Trib, and uh, he was a reporter for the Herald Tribune in the days of the Brooklyn Dodgers when their rise to fame right after World War II with people like Jackie Robinson. And he has a beautiful description of Ebbets Field. Uh, here in and why Ebbets Field was what it was. If you ever saw a ball game, and I only saw one, and I was only a kid, I was around uh, 17 or so when I saw that game. But I have to agree with them. Brooklyn Dod the Brooklyn Stadium had a great deal to do with the sec success of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, I think that the, that many of the stadia today, uh, say like Shea for example, have a certain impersonality to them. They're they're vast, fantastic. Uh, enormous uh, structures and uh, most of the time you feel like you're sitting in the next county watching a ball game through the wrong end of a telescope and uh, but that was very different in Brooklyn and, and Ebbets uh, Ebbets Field I'm quoting him uh, he said I'm going to quote uh, from the opening lines of his book this is Roger Kahn's book entitled The Boys of Summer which was recently published by Harper and Rowe and it's a fine book he said, at a point when li in life, when one is through with boyhood, but has not yet discovered how to be a man, it was my fortune to travel with the most marvelously appealing of teams. During the early 1950s, the Jackie Robinson Brooklyn Dodgers were outspoken, opinionated, bigoted, tolerant, black, white, open, passionate. In short, a fascinating mixture of vigorous men. They were not, however, the most successful team in baseball. During four consecutive years, they entered autumn full of hope and found catastrophe. <laughs> That's true. Twice they lost pennants in the concluding inning of the concluding game of the season. You remember that? Why? Twice they won pennants and then lost the World Series to the New York Yankees. These narrow setbacks did not proceed, as some suggested, from failings of courage or of character. The Dodgers were simply unfortunate. 
It is dream stuff that luck plays everyone the same. That's quite true. And not to become excessively technical. They lack the kind of pitching that makes victory sure. In the next decade, a far weaker Dodger team rallying around Sandy Koufax won the World Series race. And twice. He said, but I mean to be less concerned with curveballs than with the lure of the team itself. Now, the reason I'm doing this, this is not a sports show tonight. But to most of us, and I'm talking about people who are really not dyed-in-the-wool New Yorkers, Brooklyn has always meant the Brooklyn Dodgers. When the Brooklyn team left Brooklyn, Brooklyn almost, and, and in fact has ceased to exist for many people throughout the nation. Brooklyn does not exist anymore. It would be just the same as if tomorrow morning the Green Bay Packers moved to Toronto. By 1975, there would be no longer a Green Bay, Wisconsin to most people. It would just simply not exist. Well, that's why I'm talking about the Dodgers, uh, because to me, the Dodgers and to many other people, the Dodgers were kind of the premier showcase. They were what made Brooklyn fascinating to most people throughout the country. And specifically, ironically enough, and this is a curious, not a contradiction, I suppose you might say it was fate. The same thing that made Brooklyn fascinating to many people, and I was living in Chicago at the time a kid, was the very same thing, and I can't explain why, that made the Mets fascinating a few years later. One thing drew them together, and what was it? Casey Stengel. Casey Stengel was the manager of the Dodgers at the time they became the beloved Dodgers, really, the bums. <laughs> And I can remember Casey Stengel arriving in Chicago. Of course, we had the Cubs, and the Cubs were a mighty ball club in those days. And uh, and somehow the idea of Casey Stengel coming in with this raggle-taggle crowd, and uh, Stengel was always being quoted on the radio. And in those days, he was he was he was every bit as wild and strange and funny as uh, as uh, as he was in later life, and still remains. And Casey Stengel was the guy, I suspect, that made the Brooklyn Dodgers originally have that curious quality that later on they had. Even after he had left, they remained a, a strange, interesting ball club. But his imprint was on it. And I don't know whether Khan even brings that out in his book. Uh, but but uh, do you agree with me on that, Jerry, that, that, uh, that I can remember as a kid? I don't think I even knew the name of any other manager, but I knew the name of uh, Casey Stengel. Even his name was fascinating, Casey Stengel. Uh, you know, other guys had names like uh, Jim and Fred. Uh, <laughs> you know, they had names like Jimmy Dykes. They had, that, you know, ordinary names, but Casey Stengel. All right, he says, Ebbets Field. And now we're talking about the, uh, the temple in which the Brooklyn Dodgers played their games. Ebbets Field was a narrow cockpit built of brick and iron and concrete alongside a, a steep cobblestone slope of Bedford Avenue. Two tiers of grandstand pressed the playing area from three sides, and in thousands of seats, fans could hear a ball player's chatter, notice details of a ball player's gait, the way he walked, and at a time when television had not yet assaulted illusion with the Zoomar lens, you could see, you could actually see the actual expression on the actual face of an actual major leaguer as he played. You could know what he was like. Quote, I start in toward the bench, holding the ball, now with the five fingers of my bare left hand, 
when I get to the infield, having come down hard with one foot on the bag at second base, I shoot it with just a flick of the wrist gently at the opposing team shortstop as he comes trotting out onto the field. And without breaking stride, go loping in all the way, shoulders shifting, head hanging, a touch pigeon-toed, my knees coming slowly up and down in an altogether brilliant imitation of the Duke. That is a quote, Philip Roth as Alexander Portnoy as Duke Snyder. In the intimacy of Ebbets Field, it was a short trip from the grandstand to the fantasy that you were in the game. <laughs> That's quite true. Uh, uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn uh, has to be has to be considered in light of that ball club, uh, because it, it, to me, what a town is, what a town seems to be is often very dependent on what the rest of the world thinks. Now, for example, almost all of us have an idea what the town of Hollywood is like. Well, what are we, what are we basing it on? Hollywood, I'm talking about Hollywood, California. What are we basing it on? Well, we're basing it on movie stars. <laughs> we're basing it on, and yet the town of Hollywood is nothing at all like that. Uh, that's one industry that was in that town and is not really in that town so much anymore. And yet, Forever, Hollywood, California, will somehow remain uh, Clark Gable, uh, Spencer Tracy. It'll remain Myrna Loy, and it'll remain Peter Fonda. Yes, that's quite, quite right. For, for, I think forever, Brooklyn Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers will be Brooklyn to many people. Now, and I, I'm going to quote him again. Uh, uh, accents echo in the phrase, Brooklyn Dodgers. Brooklyn Dodgers. The words strike each other pleasantly, if not poetically, suggesting a good-humored bumping about. <laughs> Somehow that is. The, the term Brooklyn Dodgers is a lovable name. You get an altogether different sense from other nicknames. For example, the Brooklyn Astros would skate in the roller derby. <laughs> you don't see that. That's a different thing. The Brooklyn Tigers would play football in a stony sand lot. The Brooklyn Braves would be an all-black schoolyard basketball team in 1945. The Brooklyn Yankees will not simply not penetrate the consciousness. It is an anti-phrase like the Roman Greeks. I mean, it, uh, no such thing. You couldn't conceive of the Brooklyn Yankees. He says, as far as anyone knows, the nickname, and I'm going to quote Roger Kahn here, and he agrees with, with uh, my definition here. He says, as far as anyone knows, the nickname proceeded from benign absurdity. Brooklyn, being flat, extensive, and populous, was an early stronghold of the trolley car. Enter absurdity. To survive in Brooklyn, one had to be a dodger of trolleys. After several unfortunate experiments in nomenclature, the Brooklyn National League team became the Dodgers, officially during the 1920s. And the nickname endured after polluting buses had come with the last Brooklyn trolley had been shipped from Vanderbilt Avenue to Karachi. <laughs> no, tried. Brooklyn is not an inherently funny word. I'm quoting Kahn here. Although the old Brooklyn accent, in which one pronounced oil as earl and earl as oil, was amusing, the native ground might be enunciated Brooklyn, and 30 was a phoneticist Armageddon. It could be Thirty toid, thirty, 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 but dialect, all dialect, Brooklyn, Boston, German, Jewish, Boston, Russian, Italian dialect is the stuff of easy, rough humor. Have you ever heard a Georgian bell, a Georgia bell, insert four question marks in the declarative paragraph? 
I went to Rawlings. That's in Florida, south of here, and we are pretty. When a Georgia girl says no, she asks a question. With a lingering sense of Brooklyn as a land of boundless mirth, with baseball obligato, was the creation of certain screenwriters and comedians. Working for a living, they synthesized that Brooklyn. In one patriotic movie, Bing Crosby defends the American flag against a cynic by asking others to say what old glory stands for. A southerner talks of red clay and pine trees. A westerner describes sunset in the Rockies. But it is a Brooklynite who carries the back lot at Paramount Pictures. His speech begins with, Hey, Mac, ever see steam coming out of a sewer in Flatbush? And if that were not enough, can anyone forget William Bendix dying happy in a mangrove swamp? Just before a Japanese machine gunner cut him in two, Bendix had heard by shortwave that the Dodgers scored four in the ninth. <laughs> Rest in peace. Winning pitcher Greg, seven and five. Uh, that's quite true. Uh, I, I, uh, I'd have to say then that, that, the, that the first day, and I, and I, I have enjoyed talking about Brooklyn tonight because, uh, to me, I'm always fascinated by what makes people think, what, what makes me think of a thing, the difference between reality and a dream. I'll never forget the day that I, I took the, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge. Everybody knows about the Brooklyn Bridge. Somehow it's connected with Bret Hart, that's connected with people, uh, writers, and, and, uh, I remember, the first time I came to New York, I was in the army. I was a teenager, and uh, we we got into a we got into a bus. I don't even recall how we did it or anything. I don't know the the, the even the mechanics of the travel of the day of that particular afternoon. But I remember going across the Brooklyn Bridge and thinking, "This is the Brooklyn Bridge," yeah. And 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 you could see that dirty river down below you, and you could see all the warehouses. And we arrived down at the other end of the Brooklyn Bridge. And we went about a block or two, and the bus stopped. It was the bus stop. And I got out with my friend Gasser, who was also a soldier. And we walked out, and we were in Brooklyn. He was from he was from California and a sport fan all of his life. I was from Chicago and a sport fan. But why did we come to Brooklyn that day? Well, we came to Brooklyn that day because we had picked up two tickets at the USO, two free tickets, to see the Brooklyn Dodgers play, of all things, they were playing that day, they were playing the New York Giants. And it was a fantastic crowd. I mean, you know, everybody, and we were lucky to have seats, but I can remember where we sat. We sat far out on the foul line, uh, along, the, along the left field foul line, back of first base, and we sat so far out that we were right where the where the wall where the where the, this bend of of uh, Ebbets Field there was a big big bend down it was like like you were in a cave I never saw a ballpark like that it was it leaned in it was like some kind of a a curious uh, uh, pit an arena uh, I had seen many uh, major league ball games uh, out in Chicago of course the vast expanse of Comiskey Park uh, Wrigley Field was was a beautiful park. But Brooklyn had a curious dark, you were encased in that. And I'll never forget the fantastic involvement of the people. I mean, it was like one, one just a steady uproar. And all around me were, were, these, were these Brooklyn fans who had known uh, every, every pitch that had been made, apparently, 
since the day the first cavemen walked out of the first cave around Brooklyn and threw the first rock at somebody in actual competition. And it was fantastic. I couldn't believe it. And uh, the, the, the Giants unfortunately beat the Dodgers that day. But, of course, at that time, that happened quite often. But I'll never forget how they beat them. Uh, somebody, uh, I don't remember who it was at the time. I, well, yeah, I do. It was, the, it was the center fielder for the Giants. He hit one. He hit one down the left field line. And it was, it, was, it was a real shot. I mean, down the left field line, and that ball was rising as it left the, as it left the field. Went over the fence and up into the stands. It was still going up. And, and I remember the Brooklyn relief pitcher, whose name, I don't know. It's just there. I remember him just standing down there and his head sort of hanging down. And the runners coming around second and going to third. And all those Brooklyn fans, you could just see that another death had been visited on them. They were all around us. Just, you know, guys sitting there and they're drinking their last suck at a beer and they were just about ready to go and it was to me this was brooklyn and uh, it was it was even more brooklyn than any movie had ever prepared me for uh and so uh, <laughs> brooklyn dodgers have gone but they really haven't gone there's curious ghosts of the dodgers still drifting over the borough over there at night you can still hear somebody hollering for jackie robinson this is wor new york stay tuned for lester smith and the news This is the news in detail on the hour from the WR Newsroom. Back to almost nothing again are both parties in the New Jersey bus strike. Tonight,